Welcome to The Pen and the Yod. Join Rabbi Michael Siegel from Anshayamit Synagogue and author Jonathan Eig as they talk about this week's Torah portion of Pinchas, The Limits of Zealotry. Who's your favorite zealot in, in, <laughs> in all of history? Like, who's the guy that you most wish was on your side? Wow. Um... I'd have to go with Muhammad Ali. I think he qualifies as a zealot. Um, But, you know, it's a fine line. I mean, I like Ali because he stands up for what he believes in. He's going against almost the entire, you know, grain of American society in 1964. Um, But he's also at the same time, um, you know, young and and exciting and funny. and, and, And he's not one of these zealots who takes the life out of the party. He brings the party. So, um I think uh, I'm going to go with with Ali for that. Right. But in your book, you also make the point that um, he could be very mean spirited. Absolutely. And he could be brutal. I mean, he brutalized people in the ring when he wanted to. Yeah. And treated his wives terribly, treated even his friends terribly. I mean, if you if you think of him as a zealot, who was his most important mentor? It's either Elijah Muhammad or Malcolm X. And and he turns his back on Malcolm X. When Malcolm X is is trying to develop into a more thoroughly nuanced kind of a zealot, um, Ali can't see it and really stabs his, his best friend in the back. So I'm not saying uh, I <laughs> I'm not nominating him for sainthood, uh, but zealotry is often not associated with saints. Right, and he also makes a difference, not just in the boxing ring, but he also makes a difference for people of color. No question about it. And the zealot is often, you know, pushing us beyond the levels we're comfortable. And then we find out later whether they went too far. Sometimes the zealot turns out to be a prophet. Sometimes the zealot turns out to be right in line with what was needed at the time. And sometimes they, they're they going too far. And we look back at them and say that they were um, out of control. Well, this is exactly the, the issue that is arising in this week's toll reading. At the end of last week's Torah reading, you have a moment with King Balak, who first attempts to destroy Israel through the uh, pagan prophet Bilam to curse them verbally. But at the end of the portion, he comes up with a subtle, more effective approach to destroy them. He sends in the cultic prostitutes of Moab into uh, amongst the Israelites and the men they succumb, and there is basically a, a sexual orgy going on, and God is becoming more and more angry, and Moses seems befuddled along with Aaron, and so God then acts. Moses is befuddled. God is about to act, and Pinchas, the, another priest, picks up a spear, and he kills a couple who is uh, involved in this orgy, and as a result, the people stop what they're doing, and in this zealous act, he basically saves the Israelite people. That's how the portion ends, but this week's portion, which is named for this zealot, Pinchas, begins with God both praising him, but also making a covenant of peace with him and sort of taking him out of commission. And this is the interesting part, because on the one hand, his act of zealotry made all the difference in the world. But God is very quick to pull him away and say, well, that did, I'm not going to make you Moses's successor, which you might have expected. No, 
you did your job and you did something important. And now I'm going to sort of kind of sideline you. It's so interesting because it's such a fine line between the, the zealot who is stepping forward to be the next leader, to be the next Moses, and the zealot who serves a purpose, but if taken too far, may do more damage than good. You know, it really reminds me, uh, as you were talking about the meeting in 1966 uh, between Martin Luther King and Stokely Carmichael when they marched together in Mississippi. You know, James Meredith had been shot. And all of these civil rights leaders ran down there to try to carry on Meredith's march. And Stokely Carmichael, from the beginning, had a plan to undermine the entire march. He was going to drive out the most conservative civil rights leaders, Roy Wilkins and, and the rest, and, and keep King there because he, he knew King had the power to attract attention. But he was going to try to pull King to the left, try to radicalize King and try to bring King along to the black power movement, as Stokely was starting to call it. And, and he really planned this as his moment to, to turn the tide away from King's nonviolent resistance toward black power, to get black people over this idea that they had to just be passive, that they were gonna, they were gonna take to the streets in a more radical way. And uh, what I loved about this encounter was that King and Carmichael, over this walk through Mississippi over many days, talked about these issues and debated them. And King really came to respect and admire uh, and really enjoy Stokely Carmichael's company. And he said over and over to, to Carmichael and to the press that I'm not going for this black power business. Black power suggests that whites are not our partners in this push for freedom. And Carmichael was on the verge of, of in fact, banning all white people from leadership positions, from volunteer activities in SNCC. And, and King just absolutely would not go uh, across that that line, but is a great example of the pragmatist and the zealot trying to see, you know, not just fighting for for control, but really, you know, fighting for the soul of the movement. Right, because what Stokely Carmichael was saying wasn't wrong. History, you could argue, um, would bear him out that the nonviolent movement didn't push far enough, and we still have. Um, you know, segregated schools, and we still have violence and discrimination against black people and incarceration rates and so much else because maybe the 60s didn't, didn't push hard enough and far enough. The reality is, is that the king was also right. King was that you can't sustain yourself, right? When you're a minority amongst a white majority, as that was in the, in the 60s, uh, overpowering white majority, you have to kind of walk tread carefully. And so you have to be pragmatic about this. And look, history is dotted with cases where you have the zealot, you know, rise up, lead the people, whether it's the you know, French Revolution with Robespierre, you have Lenin leading the, the Russian Revolution. And if those same people remain in power, then there's also going to be a bloodbath because the zealotry doesn't end with your enemy if that, it becomes a methodology. And I think that's precisely what's going on in the Torah, is that God says, this will not sustain the people. And what's interesting, Jonathan, is that when the scribe writes the Torah and he writes the word shalom for breach shalom, the covenant of peace, the letter vav in the, in the word shalom is written in a very odd way, as if to say, there's something amiss with this peace, that a zealot cannot bring you to peace. That's a very powerful statement. And I'm, I'm thinking about our own day when people are trying to compete with each other 
in zealous ways where people are acting out with their words and in other ways and to kind of make a statement, to get people's attention, to try and steer the conversation their way and get some control over it that won't sustain a society. And yet it's easy to, to be entertained by the zealot without really appreciating where they're taking it. Yeah, um, this, we could do this conversation forever because, you know, you could argue that you need zealotry more than ever now to be heard over the mm -hmm. din of voices to be effective in this age of political inertia. When the two sides can't talk, you've got to be louder and stronger and, and a little bit nuttier to get anybody to notice you. On the other hand, how can you ever build a coalition and generate the kind of support from the masses, from the community that you need if you're on the fringes and if everybody is being pushed to the fringes. So it feels like we've gotten ourselves to the point where the zealots are, are louder than ever, but maybe less effective. I want to say this a different way because I, I'm, I'm going back to Stokely Carmichael and Dr. King. I'm thinking about the riots that dotted the United States in the 60s where, you know, burn, baby, burn was the chant of the day as major cities, Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit, uh, Los Angeles, right? There, were, there mm -hmm. was looting and there were burning of buildings and, and terrible violence going on. And you could point it and say, well, you see, where did that zealotry get anybody, right? At the same time, it did create a sense of urgency in the white community to respond. There might have been anger, but there was also a sense that we need to we need to sit down, we need to do something. This is unsustainable, right? And so that zealotry was also necessary. But it's so complicated. I mean, you could argue that that zealotry is what moved all of our grandparents or my parents actually to the suburbs and abandoning the cities. Did it have more of a negative consequence than right. positive. The answers are, are very hard to come by, but uh, ultimately, you know, the zealotry is, is coming in response to frustration, in response to anger, in response to mistreatment and injustice. So we have to be careful not to make it sound like we're criticizing the zealots here, because I think, you know, especially when you think about Soakley Carmichael's, um, or the, you know, the 60s and those riots, there's just so much anger behind them, so much justified anger. That's true. That's true, but I guess I guess I would come back to the lesson of that valve and the word shalom, that the peace that comes through zealotry is never a true peace. And what we have to do is to seize the moment that the zealot has left us and get back on a more even keel, a more balanced approach that is a peace that will sustain us. I think that's the ultimate challenge that Pinchas leaves, that the lesson of God taking him out of circulation leaves for us, is what happens in the moment where the zealot may have been the one person to save the day? And then what happens next? How do you go forward? It reminds me that when Dr. King left Mississippi and left Stokely Carmichael, where did he go? to Chicago, where he began trying to work on fighting slums and desegregating schools. And um, we still have our work cut out for us. That is for sure. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, Rabbi.